sel, que l'on baise, que l'on boive, que je lèche ton écume dans Hello, my fellow Brappentonians, and welcome to Brap Talk. This is a podcast that sometimes happens weekly, and sometimes we do the intro before the show starts. Uh, where we discuss the happenings of the motorcycle industry. If you didn't know already, I am your host, Jensen Beeler of Asphalt and Rubber. I am joined by the beautiful, the faithful, my realtor of reality on this two-wheeled adventure, Mr. Shaheen Ovandi! Did you notice I curled my mustache for you? did, you curled yeah. it up. All right, so we started the show before we started the show. <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, yeah, sure, you, you Jensen. It's been a while. Oh, man, we are a shit show today. We're, like, I'm three, I'm, I can't believe I'm admitting this, T- fucking hashtag Team Ann. I've seen three Dave Matthews concerts since I've seen you last. That's a lot of Dave. That's love. That's, that's, I don't know if that's not love and devotion on my side. I, I, I told your wife that I am forever hashtag Team Ann, but I fucking hate Dave Matthews. Would you go to three? No, I wouldn't go to one. David, John, Matthews. I would not go to a single one. Band I, concerts. I, one, I don't like concerts that much. I don't well, I do. enjoy them. Uh, it's not an enjoyable experience for me. I'm just, that's, I'm a weird dude. I got weird little things. I got weird little idiosyncrasies. That's one of them. I don't like going to concerts. I don't like hugs. Hugs and, and concerts. I don't like pickles. Like a double whammy. Yeah. Don't, don't I try to hug me and give me a pickle thing. at a concert. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Eat this pickle that's, while I give you a hug. Is that phrasing? Are we not doing phrasing? I don't know. Uh, it's it's well phrased. Well phrased. Well phrased. Don't pickle me while you're hugging my concert. What? Um, where were we going? Oh yeah. So we'd gone to the beach, and Hannah Johnson was there, the fastest woman that I know. Yes. And uh, she and Alex apparently ride more or less the same motorcycle. Uh, like yeah. They'll, they'll switch over the two fifty together, and I was like, "But Alex is so much taller than you." She goes, "We weigh the same." Yeah, they do. And Hannah's tiny. Hannah's one of the smallest human beings I've ever... Alex is a rail, though. He is. My goal for the winter season is to... So we were talking about the show. Mm-hmm. I want to lose 50 pounds. I don't know where you're going to lose... Do I have to cut off... Tapeworms. A couple of your digits? Yeah, tapeworms. Oh. Just going to hate life. But my goal is to fatten that fucker up. <gasps> I'm going to invite her to my house. I'm she gonna, likes my food pictures I'm all gonna, the time. No, not not Hannah. Alex. I'm going to f- invite both of those fuckers okay, to my house. Okay. Lots yeah, of you fatty gotta, meats. We got to put him on the cheeseburger plan. A lot of bread. Oh, yeah. All the carbs. Oh, all the carbs. Yeah. You know what? The thing is, that guy could gain 80 pounds and still be lighter than you after you lose 50 pounds. I think <laughs> I think that's actually true. <laughs> I think we actually have an 80-pound delta, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Uh, it might even be more Shaheen. And the thing of it is, never mind his, it might be his weight pounds. advantage. He is just a genuinely talented writer. He's a fast writer. He's fast, dude. And like you talk to him, he's so calm and collected and cool. He's and, nice. I hate that he's nice. Oh, his his own family's so nice. Stop being nice. Oh, my nice. God. His mom brings like cookies. I don't understand. Like her, his mom brings like potluck pulled pork and cookies and has like a whole little setup there. And I'm just like scarfing it like the little fat boy that I am. And That's he's a, still sitting there all oh, skinny. His mom is the cheating method for Alex. He, he fattens everybody else oh, I up. I think you're right. As if you're not fast enough, Alex. He's playing the full game. Oh, rude. Mm. But friendly. Mm. Is it though? That's called killing them with love. That right there. He's literally killing you with love. I, I just got back from the doctor. I have high cholesterol. I got to get on it. That's Alex's mom's fault. I got to get my shit together. You do. And now they've changed the guidelines on blood pressure. Oh. I've, I'm, I've technically got high blood pressure, so I got to get my shit together. Wait, what was your number? Do you remember? 
like 130 over 80 or something like that. Yeah, I'm a little bit lower than you, but I'm, I'm considered, I'm like 120 over 80. I was right at the cusp of what, like that week, that was considered okay. And mm-hmm. then they, the next week, they're changing the guideline and it's like pre-hypertension. Which I don't really know how like we change that. Like less salt. We decide it or not. A little bit less salt will will do you in, and also probably Mountain Dew. I know, I know it hurts. Well, Mountain Dew is not helping. I just got to exercise more, and I got to eat more. You already exercise. I'm working on it. So I lost 11 pounds in the last two months. Nice. Uh, I know it's hard to tell, but it's all in the beard. You lost all it in the all beard. In the beard. It all went into the beard. <laughs> um, no, I I just simply stopped eating carbs during the week. Like bread and beer. I just cut it out during the week. And then on the weekend, I'm like, fuck it. I'm eating everything. But yeah, I, I haven't had a chance to exercise because I've been stuck in my office studying every damn day. Truthfully, I think the cholesterol is from eating more meat because I've been eating yeah, like salamis uh, and steaks. You got to eat things like salmon a lot. Yeah. I got to get more on the fish train. Fish. Lots of fish. I'm really good at cooking salmon. I cook a really good salmon. You I like it. to brag, but salmon I cook really well. I got to learn my white fish though. <laughs> Do you have a cast iron skillet? I do now. Oh, dude. Did you, see, you didn't see it in there? I didn't see it. Oh, yeah, baby. I've been using that. Have you seasoned it? Yeah. All right. She's ready to go. I've been grilling vegetables in it oh, like buddy, a mother. That's the way to go, man. Asparagus. Instead of butter, get some ghee. That'll help. Ghee? Yeah. You just it's made clarified that word, you just made that word up. cream out of it. That's not a real word. It's a real word. Spell it. G-H-E-E. Ghee. Okay, this seems to check out on the internet. Like, <laughs> Thanks, internet. It's like Google seems to have uh, have your back on this one, but I'm right. still skeptical. If you like the taste of butter, ghee is extra buttery. They just take the cream out of it. I don't it's, really care. The, so the taste of butter is like, It's good. It, it, makes salmon, it makes salmon skillet cooking much more yeah. excitable. Yeah, yeah. You I, get a nice I crisp cook the salmon it. in the pan still. I don't do it on the skillet. No, buddy. Actually, you do it on the barbecue. Barbecue the shit. That doesn't that suck. Uh, that sounds yeah. like a good idea. Yeah. Put a little little dill on it. So what's your what's your target weight? Fifty pounds? Yeah. You think you have fifty pounds to lose? Yeah, I know I do. That's a lot, man. Well, I mean, I say I know I do. Like when I was in like college and law school, I was like 180, 190, and I was like six pack ripped. How old were you then, Jensen? Uh, I was in my mid twenties. How old are you now, Jensen? I'm in my. Uh, I'm coming up on my. I'm about to cross into my late 30s, Shane. Oh, are you going to officially couple, be 37 in a few weeks? Yeah, Whoa. I'll be 37. So it's officially just, old. It's just going to hurt. And <laughs> so alone and dying alone. <laughs> You're not alone. You have Coda Kitty. I got Coda Kitty. She's giving me really dirty looks. I love you, cat. She thinks she's getting fed. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's a good goal for the winter. I'm really. I'm really motivated, and I'll tell you why. But it ties into some motorcycle stuff. So why don't we hold on to it? And you tell me, because we're, I don't know, 10 minutes into the podcast. Nice. <laughs> why don't you tell me what you've been doing on two wheels? Not not a whole lot. Just uh, kind of going out and exploring my Pacific Northwest riding areas. Ooh, before, Sorry, I interrupt you. Yeah. You have news. I have, yeah. You should tell the people what you've been up to, and oh, then we'll man. talk about so motorcycle So I spent stuff. the last two and a half months having a, I think I realized what a midlife crisis is. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. I turned 40 last February, and I was like, I need to change things. Because I've been in the motorcycle industry forever and ever, and then I kind of realized I wanted to get out of it. So I got out of it and did kind of a business-to-business sales thing, and I didn't like it too much. And so um, I spent the last two and a half months studying to get my Oregon real estate license, real estate broker license. So I took the test last week. I passed it on the first try. Boom! Boom! Cheyenne Alvandi, realtor. Not Esquire. You're Esquire. I'm an Esquire. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Full Speed Realty is the name of the company that's hired me on. So if someone wants to buy some, are you doing commercial or residential? I'm just going to do residential. I like the, I like the face-to-face Yeah. Uh, kind of going through the process together. Commercial is very, you know, unemotional. You put a house up on Facebook, I think, today or yesterday. Yeah, I did. That looked really good. Yeah. It's like a really, 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 really dark gray. Beautiful. So it's, it's like a blackish colored it's, house. Uh, really, really dark gray. Super dark gray. Super dark, like, super dark gray. Like a, like a very piano matte, dark gray. Like a matte gray. <laughs> kind of looks sinister from the outside, but you go in it and it's looks so a little, comforting and beautiful. It's so boxy. It actually reminds me of the NSA building. Oh. Do tell. I don't, I don't know if that's a selling point. <laughs> just, I was like, huh. That's, that's interesting. That looks... Because the NSA building is just this big black cube. So one of the things I love about Portland is there's a lot of homes from like the early 1900s, like 1905 through 1920. A lot of homes still. And people have been buying them. And this house is from 1907. The people that bought it last year tore it down to the studs and it's brand new. Yeah, it's good. It's a fully modernized house, but it still looks old. If I didn't already have a house, I'd buy that house. Dude, I want that house. It's such a beauty. Yeah. So that's why I'm going to get that house and then like we can record podcasts there. That whole basement. Uh, Dude, that's a podcast basement. Amazing. That's also like hide a dead hooker basement. It's big enough for that. Yeah. Definitely. You just need to, you know, have a drainage system. Oh, it's got to have a water pump or something down there. Come on. I watch. I have to watch Dexter again to remember how to do that correctly. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched Fargo. So, oh, you know, geez. you just put him in the chipper. Oh, yeah. You were. Oh, yeah. Sure. You betcha. Oh, yeah. You betcha. You were out oh, there. Oh, yeah. Did just you got find yourself plane. a chipper. Just got off the plane from Fargo. I had a really boots. good time. It got deep in there. Oh, oh. Oof, you don't even know. It's a real flight out there. <laughs> So, what were you doing out in, in the Dakotas? Well, I was looking at the gray ducks. You know, you know, well, you see, uh, you see a regular duck and you see another, another regular duck and then you see the gray duck go by and you're like, oh, that, a, that must be migrating for the summer or summer for the winter. I don't know. They're going up and down. Is that like a over. Canadian accent or a... It's kind of like a Canadian accent with a little bit of Scandinavian. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You betcha. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Your people. Oh. Yeah, I'm like, well, more Norwegian. More I Norwegian. Mean, potato, potato, man. The Danes. Oh, the Danes didn't really come over to Minnesota. Minnesota. Mm. No, but they have a good time. <laughs> What'd you do out there? Oh, Aside I was racing some motorbikes. Hunter. Yeah, having a real good time. What kind of bikes were you some racing? Some good fellas and some good ladies. We were going around the uh, the long track at Brainerd. Ooh. Yeah. Riding. Oh, uh, riding the Kramer. Oh. oh, you betcha. Yeah, real good bike. You guys did pretty good. Oh. You were with one of my man crushes out there, Mr. Troy. Oh, yeah. Troy Seahan had Troy. a happy birthday. Yeah, he did. You betcha. Got him a little cake made from ice cream and everything. I bet he was real happy. <laughs> I don't want you to stop. <laughs> it really fucks with my head. <laughs> I want to see when the Russian under, accent just creeps in. That, that was like four days of just doing that. Oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, well, let's Tarantino what I did. Oh man, my, my notes are so out of order. Whatever. Uh, yeah, so I was in Minnesota. I see the I still do it all a little unintentionally. So I was in Minnesota. <laughs> I'm down in Minnesota. Uh, we flew into Fargo, which was... Didn't get to see the wood chipper. Come on. I guess it's in like a museum and we didn't even get to Wait, go see it. Wait, it actually exists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A movie prop. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, come on. I mean, the whole city's named after... Well, let's be fair. Like, what's what, what else has Fargo got going on? Wait, I almost said the city's named after the movie. It's not, I hope it's the other way. Yeah. <laughs> this plot of land, this movie was real nice. We'll just name it Fargo. <laughs> it's great marketing. <laughs> Uh, yes, we, uh, uh, Kramer Motorcycles USA, uh, the importer for Kramer Motorcycles here, uh, invited myself, uh, a Mr. Rennie Skaysbrook. Nice. Maybe you've heard of him. Fastest guy ever. A Pikes Peak on two wheels. Uh, and Troy Seahan. 
uh, out to race with the Central Road Racing Association. It was their last round of the year. And they do they do a couple interesting things, but the big thing that we were out there for was the five hour endurance race. We raced it on a bike, basically just like mine that I raced this year, except it's the R spec, so it's Ooh. got the dual discs. Did it um, make you wish you had an R model or no? No, I mean I got all the R bits and bobs that that I really want, and the only difference really between my bike and that bike, I mean that one's a newer bike, um, so there's some differences between the model years, so it has different forks. That bike had an AIM dash, which is really slick. I'd like to upgrade to that mm. at some point. Um, but I've got the AIM lap timer, which does some of the same functionality. Okay. Uh, and it's got the dual discs. And I'm trying to think off the top of my head what else is different. I don't think there is anything. Someone's probably yelling at the podcast right now, being like, it's got 3,000 RPMs or something. I don't the know. wheels are different. You Well, they, yeah. I mean, it runs different I mean, wheels stock, than what yeah. I have, but yeah. I have those Rot- Rotobox carbon wheels. So you get the cheaters. Obvious stuff. Cheater, cheater wheels. Yeah. Uh, oh, it had the spacing for the the chain so we can run a bigger w- tire, but I don't think we ran a bigger tire that weekend. So how many, how long was the race again? Sorry, five hours. Five hours. How many laps? Um, we had a, another teammate, a local, uh, Chris, Skell- we were joined by uh, Chris Skellinger, mm. who's like a local fast guy. Yeah, we, we had a great weekend. So we did, uh, we flew in Thursday, did Friday practice, learned the track. Saturday, we had two sprint races. Uh, I think Rennie did three. Rennie did three. He qualified, he, he did like this like Michelin Cup thing. Oh, so these were but, all separate little races. I thought so, there was like one big race that yeah, you guys all. I guess I, I screwed that up. So Friday, we practiced. Saturday, they had like a normal sprint race schedule. And then Sunday was the five hour endurance. Uh, so like okay. that was our focus, was really Got Sunday's it. race. But. It's like, well, you know, since we're here, we've got bikes. Um, Troy didn't have a bike because his had some issues with the the suspension, and he had a little crasher, and he was just like, "I'm here for Sunday, not not Saturday." And so, Rennie and I raced. Uh, I raced two sprint races. Rennie did three. Rennie won all three of his and set, if not a, he definitely was the fastest Kramer ever around the course, and I think he was the fastest lightweight superbike ever around the course, but. That guy is just we haven't really researched being the fastest, isn't he? Rennie's just fast. He's <laughs> fast, dude. Uh, Rennie, was, Rennie did a 150. Troy, I think at one point during the endurance race, did a 151. Ooh. I did a 153. And Chris was in like the 152s. So, so a respectable bunch. Pretty quick. Yeah. Um, you know, for a two-minute lap, that's a pretty small difference. It was interesting to see. Um. Uh, I got a podium on my last race on Saturday, okay. which qualified me for the Framstead Cup. Which is? You, of course. Why have you you have not heard of the Framstead? I've, I mean, I have. I just want our listeners oh, to yeah. be. Okay. I have never heard of it. Yeah. So neither did <laughs> I. But apparently this is the most prestigious race that the Central Road Racing Association does. What? And it honors a, a racer that died while competing there at Brainerd. Um and it's a it's a crazy race. So, what they do is um, they take the top three guys or girls, the top three racers from each class, and they compete at the same time. Whoa! But it's a reverse grid, and you're let off in intervals. So, um, so like they they line everyone up on the the starting grid. And you're in kind of like these waves based on some sort of calculation of time that someone did to figure out. The idea is that everyone finishes the race at the exact same time. If, it, if everything was done perfectly. So it's, a, it's a true time trial. No, it's not. Because 
I mean, it kind of is. It sounds like it's, they think like the slowest like, racer, and that's the common denominator. No, 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 no. It's more like bracket racing. Oh. So, like, if you're on an RC 390 and your lap time's like two minutes and 30 seconds, you're going to start at the front. Yep. And then, like, 38 seconds later, someone like me is going to start. And then 30 seconds after me, some guy on a leader bike is going to start. <laughs> and the idea is the five-lap race. And at the end of the five laps, we should all be crossing the starting line at the s- or the finish line at the same time, assuming the math and our pace remain the same. So how, how did that end up? Oh, things got really interesting around lap four. <laughs> <laughs> lap four is when you start catching, well, at least when I started catching people that were on slower bikes. And then I had, on my wave, I had two or three, I had two other guys that were with me. And... Like one guy was on like a older 600 and another one's on like, I think an FZ07. Oh, wow. No, one guy. No, it wasn't FZ07. I think it was an MT10. Holy shit. I might be wrong about that because I didn't really get like the best look at it. I feel like FZ07 would make more sense in your class. Well, it's just not, I think it's not by class. It's by lap time. By lap time. And so there's experts and novices in there together. So it's not crazy to have like a novice on a leader bike next to you. Whoa. And so, like, you know, they take off and then, like, you're catching them in the corners. So, like, there's the challenge of trying to beat the people that were in your wave when you have, like, really different machines. And then there's the challenge of beating the people that started before you who are also on different machines and take different lines. And you don't catch them until, you know, the last lap or so. And, like, the crazy part is there's such a time difference between when the first bike goes and the last bike goes. The first bikes are coming down the through the grid. As you're about to go. As the last guys are about to leave. Whoa. So actually, the last guys actually start a lap behind, which is insane balls. Like, from so a they safe, have to lap these people from and then a hopefully safety catch perspective, them. this is a horrible race. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. Like, I'm thinking of like a typical track day that we do, and it's like, hey, let's get the fastest person on group C and the fastest person on group B. And fast person group A together, and let's put them out there. And best of luck, everyone. It's really it's Thunderdome, and ooh, and ooh, Brainerd ooh. is one of those tracks. Like I wouldn't turns? accuse it of being like the safest track I've ever seen. <laughs> There's definitely some spots you're like. Thankfully, they're like the slowest turns. Like you go under a bridge, it's coming out of the slowest turn on the track, which also is like another like turn that has some issues because there's like this giant like berm curbing oh good that like if you crash in that turn like if you tuck the front or whatever you're hitting you're definitely hitting that curb like you're gonna break a shoulder for sure something's breaking like you're still only going like 30 miles an hour or whatever your clavicle doesn't care but it's it's like it's just gonna suck and then there's like a bridge right there and you're like oh my gosh so wear your airbag suit airbag suit for sure (laughs) um in fact, if I was like Alpine stars at Uneasy, I would program into the suit. If you go down this turn, <laughs> automatic airbag. It's just not going to be good. Doesn't matter how fast you're going. Just but it was it really, it was really interesting to do the race and like lap four is when I started catching um, some of the slower 390s and getting through the traffic, and uh, it was interesting. I mean, I've never done a race like that before. Uh, I probably will never do another race like that again. Uh, I was really honored to be to be invited to do it to qualify for it. Huh. Uh, I think I finished like seventh overall. So, so who was the, know. who invited you? Was it Kramer or Prelly? So Kramer invited us out. Okay. To, to race this. It's, it's kind of their home track. And it's they're their the home ones that four of you. Yes. Yeah. Is there a team captain aside from the uh, Kramer people? Sure. I don't, I, don't, I just don't know no. how the team whole thing there, works. Technically, like, I think there is supposed to be a team captain. I don't know who it was. I think it was just Joe from Kramer. Oh, I don't good know. job, Joe. Yeah. Good job, Joe. Not, not, 
Not my problem. Not, not my not, not Troy. Uh, outside. No, not Troy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that little kid? That guy? It was just his guy? birthday. He was just there to party and someone threw him in a racetrack. He, he didn't have a birthday. And like the week before was Rennie's birthday. Was, we had a lot of birthdays. And my birthday's coming up. So, Dude. All the birthdays. What are you doing for your birthday? Going to Bali. It's going to be red. Bali. Yeah. That's where you're going to get tapeworms. Yeah, for sure. You're totally going to lose some weight. For sure. I'm excited for you. Yeah. Um. So that was the Framstead. That was, that was crazy. So... Yeah, fun part of the front side. So we didn't know that I had qualified for it until they're literally like 30 minutes before the race reading out all the numbers of the people who were qualified. I guess we were supposed to know and just didn't. Oh, shit. So like, just imagine like, some, somebody walking up to you. Suit up, dude. Like, why? <laughs> yeah. So like we're listening on the PA and like listening off all the numbers and I hear 314X. And I'm like, oh, wait, that's that sounds familiar. That's my number. That oh, can't shit. be right. <laughs> and like sure enough, I'm like, oh, shoot, we got a race. So we didn't have tires. We didn't have the right tires for the bike. So we didn't have the bike even on warmers. Oh, uh, we got lucky that like there was a bit of delay. So we actually got the tires warmed up, but they were the wrong tires. We we're using um, So they're, they're already used. They're already from used up on Saturday. Uh, for the sprint races. These are still the super soft ones? These are the super softs. Good. They're known for lasting a long yeah. time. And like, and it's cold. It was cold on Sunday. So like, you should want to run like an SC2 compound. We were running in the SCX, which is like a qualifier tire. <laughs> it's good for like three laps. Yeah. So like <laughs> the first lap, you go out and this turn one, I mean, turn one and turn two for a Kramer are flat out. Like 130, 140 miles an hour. Turn one's 130, 140. Turn two, you slow down a little bit. Just because of, I don't really know why, to be honest. Physics, you're on the different part of the tire. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's the amount of heat it's carrying. So I go through turn one, th- turn two for the first time. And I feel the right, the rear tire like drift out on me. Oh. And I'm sliding through the turn and I'm going like, oh, so this is how I die. This is, I'm leaving darkies. It's like, it's like the biggest <laughs> power slide I've ever had in my entire life. And I'm just like trying to like, really gently get off the throttle and push the bike up and it all kind of works out like you still have to like make the turn like you're still doing like a buck 30 and you're kind of there's a little wiggle room on the line but like if you don't really hit that apex you end up going too wide and then you end up like out of the curbs at like 130 and that's not so great so that was a moment (laughs) um did you contemplate life right then contemplated a lot of things what i was doing in my world how did i end up here had a good race i think i finished seventh or so i mean out of how many uh i don't know like 30 or 40 oh wow, that's all right i I, I beat running that was a a crowded track i beat mr pike's peak all right let's just i just want that to be real clear so next year if they allowed (laughs) motorcycles at pike's peak you can go there yeah i don't know Rennie had to start uh (laughs) like 18 seconds behind me or something like that <laughs> didn't work out <laughs> they started them on fr- on on sunday i had my <laughs> you best start lap. on saturday yeah and no, i had my best lap of the of the weekend on that in that race i did a 53 flat on those shoddy tires on those shitty shoddy tires hey you know this is like this is like somebody putting a rock in a cake and telling you to eat carefully yeah you were paying attention oh my goodness so last lap last corner uh i'm coming up on a guy and i'm like i'm gonna get this guy and uh and i'm like you know I'm, I'm kind of there but i'm not so i throw it in kind of early or i try to get up underneath them and i'm coming out and i'm on the gas really hard and the bike just kicks out from underneath me and like it's about to give me a high side and i close the throttle in time and it kind of bucks me out of the seat and i kind of hit my head against the windscreen Whoa. and it, this is this is in front of everybody you know it's like there's like a tower right there where everyone watches 
and like I, I kind of kind of like settles down. And I just get my high hand, arm up in the air, bullhorns. Yeah! I'm like, yeah, it just happened. Eight seconds, motherfuckers. What's going on? <laughs> Throttle it down the straightaway. I, I didn't get the guy. I got him like ten feet after the line. But how long before your hand started? I got, I got shaking points. afterwards, dude. No, I, I literally told those people, uh, my team afterwards, I was like, I need to have a minute. Like I'm still kind of buzzing from this one. This one kind of scared the crap out of me. <laughs> that whole race because that that tire was just sliding everywhere it was just, it was already shagged and it's already the wrong compound and it's a 160 instead of the big fat 180 Ugh. oh my god so many so many bad things but it was really cool to to be a part of it to experience that it's a big deal for that club um are you gonna do it again i mean if you get i mean invited. if i qualify for it yeah i'll yeah. do it again i, I mean i've already forgotten what a horrible idea it was um <laughs> you survived it i survived Just, it's you know maybe make notes about the right tires being brought and the it, right amount of them it's interesting it's an interesting race like that last lap for sure is interesting so that was sunday morning um uh, then we we had like a little break and then we started doing the endurance race five hours is a long time to be on the track i mean i know it's not just one person out there but dang it went by really quick how many lap well so how do you guys decide who does how much? Is it a quarter per person? Well, we only had about 45 minutes worth of gas on the bike. Wow. Which makes the math really tough. Um, so we just, we just, Renny started, then it was Troy, then it was me, then it was Chris. And then um, Chris actually crashed with about seven minutes in his stint left. Pick it back up and start riding or what? He got the bike back. I was Kramer's crash so good. It's like a weird thing to brag about. Like my bike crash was really good. They do for some reason. That's a good thing to know though, as for a potential buyer to, I mean, low sides happen a lot more often than people think they do. Yeah. We, oh, it didn't just load like it low sided, but then it like kind of kicked up and did a tumble. Oh, good. And it still survived. It still survived. Holy moly. That's a tough little bike. We replaced a lever or sorry, a, a bar. And I don't think we needed to replace the bar. I think truthfully at the end of the day, like the fairing got like a little banged up. Um, oh, so that's why the front fairing on the left side's all scuffed all, up all on one picture. Somebody asked that question. Yeah. And I did not answer uh, it. That was the worst of the damage. I don't know why we replaced the bar, but we did. Um, yeah, you know, just why not if you had one. But it, yeah, I mean, whatever. We were in the pits for seven minutes. What a difference it makes to have such a lightweight motorcycle that can take a beating like that. Oh my gosh. If it was a big, heavy leader bike. Oh my gosh. would have folded. Super impressive. You can actually see where the rear tire rubbed against the tail section wow. we're not entirely sure how that happened um did it just get compressed that hard i think that i think it got compressed that much and i think the the tail section is that plastic tank oh yeah and i think there's some flex in that could you i mean it would probably show stress marks on the plastic if it flexed that much fascinating maybe i don't know good job kramer the germans know. know what they're doing the germans are very smart <laughs> oh yeah sure you betcha oh yeah <laughs> Um, so yeah, even despite that, so we, when that went, when that happened, we were third overall first in class and we had gotten, um, pretty lucky because, uh, the other Kramer that was racing against us had a crash earlier. So we were already like seven laps up on them or something like that. They, the guy crashed right in front of me actually was during my stent. So I did an hour long stent because we had a red flag during it. Um, so like 15 minutes in red flag and we're just like, I'll just stay on the bike. Hour long is fucking impressive. It wasn't too bad. I mean, I've done 25, 30 minute stents if I've done like group A and B together and I'm like, I'm done. I'm tired. It's not too bad. I mean, mm. actually I think it was easier to do an hour on that than it was to do an hour at the go-kart track for the bold Oregon. Oh, okay. Just because like the Kramer is a pretty comfortable bike. 
It's surprisingly for a small bike. It's actually surprisingly comfortable for a large person. Hmm. It's very, it's very long. It's very tall. And Brainerd, I mean, half the fucking lap is just that straightaway. So you get like, <laughs> you know, you get some time to catch your breath. Just kind of lean on the tank a little. It's not like a super technical track. Like it's not a workout. Um, it's really like kind of sweeping kind of turns. Were you listening to music while you were doing this? No, but what? the guy pitted next to us took like an extra 45 seconds in the pits because he had like had to get his stereo in his ears, his little Walkman and get the tunes on. It was like, wow. I guess, I guess it was something like the guy that was out there that was out came in like a lap early. So they weren't ready yet. And then the guy that was supposed to go out, like he wasn't in like his stuff yet. So he's like getting all of his stuff together. Like the bike's <laughs> sitting there. It's ready to go. And he's like, hold on. I got to get my, my leathers on. And I don't think there's I gotta get my race work. I got to get my earbuds in for my music. And then they're like, tell him like, leave it. I was like, no, I want to go. And he's like getting his helmet on. It's like the most bizarre <laughs> thing I've amazing. ever seen. That's amazing. I guess when you're just racing for fun, it's fine. I would have lost my mind. <laughs> I was on that. You just oh. out there just turning red. Oh. Like, what the fuck? Next, I'm like, I was about to lose my shit on. I'm like, are you fucking kidding <laughs> Wait, you're not on my team. Hold on. Throwing tires at strangers. Hey, fuck face, wake up. <laughs> Let's go. Come on. <laughs> uh, help me help you. Um, but yeah, so we got really lucky with the crash. We, we got everything fixed in seven minutes, which was amazing. Yeah, that's very amazing. Um, that was like retech and everything. And then... Uh, yeah, so he's got to pass through tech all over again once something happens. Like yeah. That. And so Rennie was up to go next anyway, so we sent him out. So like that almost worked out to be like a normal stint huh. by the time we got the bike out there again. And then like we started looking at lap times because I think that put us... Uh, we were sixth overall, second in class, I believe. I, I wrote it all down on a Facebook post. I should probably have looked at that. How many bikes in the five-hour race? Oh, uh, I like think 30 or 40. There's a few. And is it a... Yeah, like 30. Well, how many 40. classes in that in that race? Five classes. Five classes. Yeah. And are they by time or by CCs? No, they're like normal classes. So like there's like a leader bike class, a 600 class, a middleweight class, lightweight class, and then like an ultra lightweight class. So ultimately you guys came in first in your class and then overall, overall we finished fifth because one of the other teams crashed out. That's bonkers that you guys finished fifth overall. I think legitimately we could some... have finished third overall. Wow. Like it would have been close. It like there was the, yeah, the, the teams that were third and fourth were pretty much like pretty close to, to each other. And you do the math and it's like, maybe, so we were contending with in our class, there was a, I think it was a Honda 600. No, it was a Yamaha 600. Like an R6 or a? No, it was an older one. They're, so they, they run like 1990, let's say five and older. I don't remember the year that it's a like cutoff. Old YZF. YZFs, Honda F3s, Honda wow. F2s, you know, old 600s. Those are allowed to race in the class as well. And this one team put like this, like, I want to say it's like a 20 gallon tank. It's not, but. <laughs> It might have like been an enduro tank. It could have been like eight gallons. It was huge. <laughs> so he's got Dakar style t- tanks that stick down below it. Yeah. So it, it was so big. Like they didn't even really tuck behind the windshield. <laughs> you know, it, it just kind of like, it's just, it looked like a tank bag. Like if you just put a tank bag on like a sport bike, that's what it would have looked that's like. That's amazing. Except they just, it's a full glass. They just kind of like tank. fitted a, a random tank, like a, like a custom made tank. Yeah, they just made thing. something. That's amazing. Yeah. Um. So that was like our big worry. Cause they were, they weren't running very fast times compared to us. They didn't have to pull over. But we didn't really know what they were doing. Um, fuel stoppage. And I think actually it ended up working out. 
I think they did the same number of fuel stops as we did. I think the math on that got weird. Oh, but we were weird. we were sweating it right to the very last stent. Um, so Rennie went out, did a full stent, and then Troy did a half stent, and Rennie did a half stent. Um, and we ended up winning by a lap and a half over them. But I think if they hadn't done their last pit stop, the math on that looked like it would have been neck and neck. Like yeah. we would have been passing them on like the final lap kind of thing. You guys were doing 45 minutes per tank. Yeah. Comfortably, I guess. Thereabouts. What's, what does that thing hold? Like three gallons? 3.17, I think off the top of my head. It's pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. Considering it's redlining the whole time. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're bouncing off the limiter going yeah. down the front straight. I mean, I've heard your bike when you're on PIR and that poor thing just screaming. It's like, <laughs> please, you're too uh, big. Lose 50 pounds. Yeah. So it was really cool to, to go do that. It was a really good way to end my season. Uh, I actually had to miss the last Oma round to go do it. Yeah. Which I was bummed about. We were uh, talking about that. A uh, fellow writer and I, Mr. Drat. Oh, yeah. He was missing you being there. He wanted to beat up on you a little. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to beat up on him. Um, I, I mean, it's... I. I I I'd committed to this race like six months ago, so there was no way I wasn't going to do it. But uh, it, it does kind of hurt because I finished my Omer season second in the lightweight superbike class, nice. which is rad. Very nice. I was third in middleweight, though. And because I didn't race the final round, I dropped a you fourth. You lost points, yeah. Jacob got me. Well, so, next year. Um, but you already knew coming into this season with Omer that yeah. you were going to miss some. Yeah. It's fine. Part of the um, nature of being asphalt and rubber. It's, it's It was cool to go to, to Brainerd. So the CRA, the Central Road Racing Association, they were so nice. They were so hospitable, awesome club. Like everyone was, even the shit talking that we had with the other Kramer team um, in classic like Minnesotan form, like came over, oh yeah, I think uh, I think that got a little out of hand there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I said some things I didn't mean. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine them. Oh, your mother's a very nice person. <laughs> your mother was a nice lady, and I think she raised a fine young son in you. What did you say to me? <laughs> Oofta. <laughs> what does one eat in Fargo? Uh, well, we were in Brainerd, Minnesota. Oh. We never actually had a meal in Fargo. Oh, man. Yeah. Right, what did you eat in Brainerd? We went to a place called Grizzlies. And steak? That sounds like uh, steak. I actually had pasta. I you carved pasta up. I carved up. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Me some pasta fazool. <laughs> uh, you're in Minnesota, sir. We have cows. <laughs> yeah, they just uh, we had cheese curds. Oh, fried. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm. Is there any other way? <laughs> I mean, raw. That's gross. Just straight up cheese. That's curds. just gross. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. Uh, there was yeah, they're really hospitable. The Kramer people did a great job um, putting everything together and and working the pits and they had a they've got that dialed in. Uh, I'm glad that you know the three of us could or I guess four of us, including Chris, um, could could bring it home for them, you know, uh, and then put up some good results. So there's some there's already talk of doing it next year. There's some talk of doing, like, maybe the Weira National Endurance Series this year or next year, which I don't know how that's going to work. We're going to have to figure that out. Just timing-wise? Yeah, just... Just the way Weira runs their Endurance Series, so it's, like, four rounds... And they're all kind of like late summer to late fall, all in the East Coast area, mid-Atlantic area. Uh, I've actually been to two of the tracks, three of the tracks that they race on, um, oddly enough. But like the way they do the classes is just strange because we'd like to do it on the GP2, the, mm. the, the twin cylinder bike that's coming out. 
But the way that that bike falls into classes and the way Weira does classes, it would have to race against R1s. Whoa. And you're just like... That's a... Okay, so a track like Barber, like, there really wouldn't be that big of a disadvantage. No, Barber's super technical. I feel like that bike would stand up against an R1. Yeah, and... I used to, I mean, pits changed since the last time I've done a track day there, but that's not like the most technical track either. Or sorry, it's it's a fairly, it's not like the fastest track either. It's fairly technical. They do road ledges too or what? It's just, it's just weird. Like you just, at the end of the day, like how are you going to have a 130 horsepower bike be competitive against a 230 horsepower bike? And like, that's a lot of effort and a lot of travel and a lot of money to go kind of like to, to just race for the fun of it. Right. And it's just weird how they do the classes. It's Everybody really loves the David and Goliath story, man. Yeah. And like, you know, even when you have like teammates that are really fast, like, you know, maybe it'd be interesting, but I don't know. It, we got, <laughs> we got to wrap our heads around it. Let's just put it that way. Um, if we can get the bike in an eight, four, eight displacement, it can run what Weira calls a medium weight. Oh, I would just like to say for a second, Weira medium weight's not a word. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know why you use it that way. Your because rule it's between your rule lightweight and heavyweight. You have a bananas rule book. <laughs> uh, it's crazy. It really is crazy. I was reading it the other night. It's just like you, you literally have to have a legal training to understand their their rule book because they like within a thing they'll be like, uh, you can run this bat this bike, but per this class rules, and you go into that class rules, and it's like, oh yeah, these are three class rules, and then you also have to include this class rules. And you're Article like, two section yeah, a it's row like you keep C. Referencing another thing, I got to like keep flipping pages here. Jeez. But yeah, they run their 1000s and their 600s together, and then they run the middleweights by themselves and the lightweights by themselves. And then the ultra lightweights do a separate race altogether. I always wonder how they come up with these rules. Like, what yeah, happens in the past that this is what. I mean, the it's, an old, it's an old uh, racing series. I'm sure that rule book's just like revision after revision after revision as it, as it happens. Um, I totally got sidetracked. Oh, yeah. So I missed, I missed the last home around, which was very wet and rainy and super wet and rainy. Um, but I had a good round five. Uh, we did the chicane. You're, you're running out of space for all your medals, and they're all over the house now. Yeah. So I got. I finished the season with 16 podiums, two race wins. One of them I got um, in round five. Nice. Which was a really that was a really good out. I had a good battle with Drat. I had a good battle with Alex. Good battle with Matt. Um, I did a 122.6, which is about to put that. In perspective, I think I did a 125 the last chicane round. So I was doing the math machine. I dropped seven seconds over the course of this. That's a this, lot. Like racing experience. And I still think like three or four of those seconds was just me getting comfortable on the bike and getting up to pace. Well, yeah. But there's another three or four seconds in there that I think are legitimately just me getting faster. Well, yeah, but you getting comfortable on your bike and getting with the pace is part of the natural progression of. No, like, I mean, like, I would get on the bike and I'm like, I'm. What the pace I'm doing right now is not my pace. Like if I got on a different bike, I would be going faster. Right. Like just it's it was it was a rider issue. Like I know I can go around the track faster. I know I have better turns. I'm I'm better at this than, just than what I'm doing. Comfortable with that particular machine. A little bit, I think. Just kind of easing into yeah. it and getting used to the bike and just kind of getting my head wrapped around it. Um and getting up to speed. It's funny how that works. We our motorcycles sort of become like an extension of our physical body. And when you ride a different motorcycle, it takes a minute to kind of get comfortable and, you know, feel fluid on it. It does. And I think some of it too was the, I didn't want to crash and have to redo extra rounds for my novice license. I just want to get my novice license done and dusted. Um, I had to have the bike stay in one piece because I need to get a bunch of stories done on it. Yeah. 
I think there's a lot of factors there. Um, and sometimes it's just easier when it's not your bike, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a lot easier to chuck it down the turn. But uh, the it, journalist it, life. It was funny at the endurance race, working with Rennie and Troy and being on the same team, seeing how, uh, how much quicker they are at getting up to speed and getting comfortable because they were comfortable after like the first session and they were like able to start working on things. And to me, it took like the better part of a day. Really? I just, feel like you would have been in the same uh, same position. Like uh, I mean, you've ridden I, so many different bikes in so many different places. You do, but um, to 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 go from like our first laps were probably like two minutes to drop like ten seconds, like Rennie did. Like I did a one fifty three flat. I think I had. I know I had a one fifty two flat in me because I wasn't quite. I didn't get three done well at all. And there was a couple of other sections. Like we were able to put Rennie's data over mine. And you could see where like I was missing some spots, but like I know like I had a second in turn three, you know? Hmm. Um but like I don't know how to get to 150. And I don't know how to get like a 151 probably wasn't in the cards either. Um but it's just interesting to see how quick they got to that pace compared to to me, which is which is an interesting kind of like skill set to have. Like it's one thing to be able to learn a track quickly and to learn a bike quickly, but to be able to take it to 10 tenths that quickly yeah and i think i probably needed another day to probably drop another second or second and a half which is an interesting thing um i mean it'd be nice to go back i feel like i i get into it pretty quick but um and it's the same thing looking at, at like pir like it just took me that long to to drop that seven seconds that first that initial bit tracks like pir and where you were at is they're interesting because you know they're high speed tracks and so uh, you know they're i think it's Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like sometimes it's easier to get faster, quicker on a more technical track where you're not concentrating on high speed, but you're concentrating on technique and, you know, late braking and early apexing maybe. Whereas on a track like PIR where it's all about, you just got to wind a thing up. And for some people, that's a, a more scary concept to just open that thing up. It's more like the nuances. Like, like I guess that's the thing that's, that's hard to explain. So to get from, I think my, like third lap or or my third, my third session, I was doing like 158s. So somewhere between like that half day period, I dropped five seconds. Mm. But the difference is like how quickly like Troy and especially Rennie were able to find like the nuances of that track. Like there's a couple of interesting spots where, you know, it was really important that you make a late entry or an early entry or, you know, you give up a little bit on the on the entry so you can square off the exit to make it more of a straightaway. Like there's like this weird, they use these cones to make like a weird kink, which is like a whole, we could have a whole talk conversation about that. Uh, that's a very scary kind of area because <laughs> you're going right out a wall. But, you know, there's, in, there's, there's the time to be made there. And like for, for someone like Rennie, he looks at it and he immediately understood or was quicker to understand like the fastest way through there, where it's like for me, it took me half a day to figure it out. And yeah. then there's parts of like turn three, like I was breaking at the three board, and I would have to convince myself to break at the three board, even though every time I went through there, I had tons of speed, or, or, or sorry, I gave away tons of speed. And I'd be like going to the turn, like ah oh, fuck, I went too slow into this turn. <laughs> but like that mental, like because you're coming out of two hundred and thirty mile an hour turns. Just to have that mental, like, no, 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 no. Yeah, break at the three board. Definitely break it. Actually, probably want to break at the two board. Ooh. Really? The two board's fine. You're going to make it if you break at the two board. And, like, and to trust that instinct. 
Whereas those guys were like, okay, break to the three board. Oh yeah, I had plenty of speed. Oh, plenty of room. Okay, I break it two and a half. Oh, still plenty. I'll break it two. And like it takes them like five laps to make that click and to right. make that adjustment. Where I'm sitting there trying to like have to like really like no, 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 no. like it's it trust me on this one, Johnson. You've done this like ten times now. Like it'll work out fine. Did you guys do any riders meetings with a map of the track and talking about these different nuances? No, we, we had a guy give us a toe, and that really helped uh the first session, one of the local guys. And um and then after that, we just kind of went our own. And then, like, we kind of worked together as a team. Like, so, like, that afternoon, actually, Troy was really helpful to let me follow him a few times. And Randy let me follow him once or twice just to get me a little bit up to speed just because I was taking longer. Um, so, that was good to have, like, that team uh, environment and to be able to look at the data together right. and go over it. And that was really interesting. Um, and that helped a lot, you know, going into it. Like, like I said, like, I dropped, like, another second um, that Sunday morning on those totally shagged tires um so you know obviously something was was working right um but yeah it, it was an interesting insight into the mental side of the sport i guess is the takeaway i'm trying to go with that's a that's a huge part of it i mean anytime i'm just talking track days not even racing but at the end of a track day since i'm you know the last year i spent a lot of time trying to get faster and faster and faster so every time you do that every time you're battling your brain to break a little bit later and get on the throttle a little bit earlier and get tighter in the apex it's it's a constant conversation in your head every lap. You really have to be analytical. Yeah, you do. And that's actually one of the stories that I'm going to write for the ANR Pro readers for the Gone Racing series is just kind of like it's called to measure is to know. And it's like the different things that you can do to to measure your lap. And I think the best advice I got was from um, a guy I raced with at Omer, Matt O'Rourke, was, you know, just get a GoPro because it's one of those things where you say to yourself, mm-hmm. break the three marker. But the video will, will doesn't lie. No. Like, did you really break oh, it yeah. the three marker? Brutally honest. Were about you it. really at the apex of that turn? Right. Did you really get on the gas right away? And you can catch yourself. Like one of the things for me that I learned to to get quicker was just like I'd be not lazy, but I'd be slow at things. And like you don't think you're slow. Like the transition from the brakes to the throttle, mm-hmm. you don't think you're slow, but you are. Like you're you're waiting. A tenth of a second or a half of a second yeah, you're it's processing like, it yeah and like if you literally just were like quicker with your actions that would make up a tenth of a second in that turn which could be a win and at 10 turns on a track that makes up a second yeah. and it's really fascinating to see how that is and then like um and if you can get behind someone who's got like a similar pace but makes those changes like there's been a few times where i was behind matt in particular we go into a turn and he immediately jumps like 10 seconds or not 10 seconds 10 feet ahead of me and you're like oh that's him on the gas for just a little bit longer or that's him not waiting as long between the transition of brakes and gas or that's him you know getting on the gas early you can see where the differences are like oh yeah i'm losing 10 feet every lap at turn four right or at turn three or turn nine or whatever it is um and that that shows in in the video pretty obviously and then you can get like a lap timer and that tells you your times and you can get a fancy lap timer like me that has like a full data acquisition with GPS and lean angles and stuff. And that's really cool. And then you can get into the full data acquisition with potentiometers and, <laughs> you know, you can just how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? <laughs> oh, man, as deep as your wallet can afford. Yeah, but um, there's some interesting cheap options out there, too. But uh, the, the end result was, you know, like I said, it was seven seconds over the course of the season. I finished my season with a 122.6 on the chicane course, which is two seconds under the lightweight superbike record and just about three quarters of a second over the middleweight superbike record. Um, and if I'd done it 
during the right race. I'd have a lap record to my name. Oh, man. But I did it in the middleweight race instead of the lightweight race. Actually, I did I did uh, about five or six 22 laps, which is pretty good. Um, I think we only had 12 laps the whole season out of all the riders in wow. the middleweight and lightweight categories in, in the 22s, and I have half of them. So I was pretty stoked. Like I, fin- I feel like I finished my season on a really strong point. You should have like carved your name on the side of the track or something. Well... So the very last race, um, I had uh, the bolts from my rear uh, sprocket back out, and they started shaving down my swing arm. I, so I saw I, that I, picture. I, you should go look at the bike. It's downstairs. I notice it's in its it's in its comfortable bedroom right my now. My new swing arm arrives in a few days. Um, but this is why I, we do things like safety wires, kids. Not safety wire, Loctite. <laughs> yeah. All the Loctite. <laughs> so one of the funniest things about Loctite is the colors that mm. indicate how mm-hmm. hard they are mm-hmm. are really misleading. Like red Loctite is not the hardest one. Green Loctite is. And to me, red means stop. Green means go. Red's pretty, red's pretty strong though. It is, but green is like you. If you're putting green break, Loctite, break like, the bolt. That's like, yeah, that's a one time like that bolt goes in and <laughs> it doesn't leave. Done. <laughs> it's like I was going to weld the bolt in the place, but I didn't have a welding machine. So I use green Loctite. Right. <laughs> Red Loctite's like, I don't really want this bolt to come out, but maybe one day I do. I learned that as a teenager because I reached for the green Loctite <laughs> and I was fixing something on my old RX-7. And my buddy was like, stop. What are you doing? I'm trying to put this bolt in. Are you going to take that bolt off again? Yeah. Don't use that. Yeah. <laughs> he pretty much said exactly what he said. Yeah. He's like, this guy just welded in there. It's Done. just it's just done, though. Um, so that was another great Jensen's not a good mechanic moment. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say, so I ended up, the, the race where those started, so they ended up backing their way out and ended up grinding the inside of the screen. I heard it, but I thought it was the bike. So I was racing Drat, and we're really, like, we're really close. And I'm getting my head, like, kind of near his rear wheel, which is an awkward situation. Ooh. And that's when I start hearing it. And then as he kind of like that pulls, his bike, is it my bike? Hey, that's the thing. He starts pulling away, and the sound goes away. And I'm like, oh, that's totally his bike. He's got something going on with his. <laughs> and I don't think anything about it. I end up losing that race by what was it? Twenty eight thousandths of a second. You didn't have drag on that rear swing arm. That's what oh, I'm saying. You got that's fucked. what I'm saying. I mean, t- I don't want to make like make excuses or anything, <laughs> but that's got to be at least a horsepower. At least, dude, that's, can you imagine how much power it takes to grind down the swing arm with Titanium a bolt? Titanium bolts on an <laughs> aluminum swing arm. I'm glad it didn't do something stupid like seize up on you. You know, everyone was kind of like freaking out about it. I think worst case scenario, I just wouldn't have, I would have lost the ability to drive the rear wheel. I don't think it actually would have been that bad because the rear sprocket is going to stay on the rear axle. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, it wouldn't have been that bad. It was a very expensive. Whatever, I'll take what it gave you instead of what it was. Very expensive mistake. Uh-huh. I'll tell you. Apparently, that's the most expensive part on the bike. <laughs> so, are you going to get like a stock swing arm or can you get some cool, lightweight? No, it's all the same shit. <laughs> but other than that, even nope. with that, it was still a good way to finish out the Omer season. Um, that round, I got I got uh, five podiums, one win, two th- seconds, two thirds. Um, was really happy with my pace. I was mixing it up with some really fast guys. I was, I felt really good. And that, and that was the hardest part to not race the final round. Uh, especially since, uh, the final round of the season is a combined round with Wormra. So, oh, wow. so pretty much everyone's there. Uh, I really felt like, like I could, I could wreck some stuff and, and do some good results and some good lap times. And, you know, you always think about what that would have been like. But so what are your thoughts for next year then? The, so, I mean, I got to lose 50 pounds. <laughs> I gotta get my swing arm put on. Um, but no, I, I feel legitimately like uh any race I grid up on, I have a potential to win. 
Okay. Um, I think it's going to be tougher on the regular course of PIR just because there's a little horsepower disadvantage. But um, coming from both chicane rounds were like my, my strongest rounds. And so there's something about the chicane course that does well with me, does well with the Kramer, and for some reason throws issues to other people. Um, so like those rounds I go into feeling like I can win every race I'm lined up for the PIR normal rounds. It's like, well, podiums, but you know, right there, right. You know, I something that can happen. needs a more technical track that has. Yeah. And the Ridge, I don't have as much experience at the Ridge, um, but it definitely suits the bike better. Um, I bet. But you kind of go into the lion's den with the wormer people, but you know, like that, that's the thing where like I'm saying, like my goal for next year is win races to, I would like to win the classes that I enter in. And so are you going to be still novice next year or no? no? I'm already an expert. You're done. I was Sweet. an expert midway through the season. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, I think there's a good chance to go for the one C plate. Oh boy. That'd be the goal. Oh boy. Win the classes, win the I mean, races. Unless Alex is there and he's in the same class as you. Alex is going to have to, you know, <laughs> pony up. He's going to have to get his carbs on. <laughs> get hungry for it alex if you're listening next week my house pasta let's go yeah um but yeah no it's a fun way to to end it because i ended it with a lot of confidence and um i think i've got the bike dialed to where i want it to be i think i've got the rider dialed where i want it to be the big thing's going to be putting the time in the off season lose some weight get on some bikes don't get rusty uh i saw that in the opening round of the season how rusty those guys were right um you're gonna be doing a lot of dirt biking this winter not dirt biking, I don't think, but uh, I mean, I have, I have the the advantage of press launch season starts in February. Yeah. So I I had already been to like four or five track days before the racing season started, just for pre- just for press events. But I might do uh, the winter series down in Chuckwalla. I was going to ask you if you're going to trailer the bike down there and do some California stuff. Yeah, I wanted to do the last round with AFM at Thunder Hill, but I'll be in Bali for that. Um, but yeah, no, I want to keep the racing going, keep it. I might do some flat track. Please uh, tell me you're going to rent a scooter in Bali and ride around. Yes. yes. It's, it's actually the only way you can get around. Yeah. It's insane. That's going to be amazing. But yeah, it's, I got, I got a to-do list of things of, of get done on the bike. Um, I want to, part of the, the story series is figuring out fueling. Cause I just basically ran uh pump gas and, um, Sunoco GT 260 GT plus. Which is just like what our track vendor sells. It's not bikes, not mapped for it. It's, it's not a, the mapping for the Kramer kind of works on it. Like it's not like off, off, right? But it's not mapped for it. So can you get it tuned specifically yes. for that? We'll get, we're gonna, so we'll do a whole story about fuel okay. and part of that will be tuning. Yeah, I remember we had a conversation about that months ago. But I think there's like, you know, three, four, five horsepower and fuel that can be found and there's some other things and, um that seems optimistic that's a lot of power yeah that could be that win that's that 0.28 seconds my my biggest thing is going to be getting the rider in shape because like there's like legitimately like eight pounds of horsepower on the line there which is like a misnomer <laughs> like that's ah, the funny thing when people do that like power to weight ratio like right. oh if i lose 50 pounds someone's like oh for every 10 pounds you lose six horsepower and you're like well that actually depends on the weight of the bike and the weight of the person because it's it's not like a direct thing and like at a track like pir like top speed's a big deal top speed really has nothing to do with weight no. weight and top speed are not correlative no. weight and acceleration are so 
by me losing 50 pounds, is my bike going to go from 130 miles an hour to 140? No, it's still going to be a 130 mile an hour bike. But it'll get to 130 a lot quicker. But it'll get to 130 a lot quicker. Right. So for me, losing the weight really is going to help me getting out of turn nine and out of turn four, yep. which are actually the two places where I'm having the most trouble really? keeping up with people. And you, and you start sitting there and you're like, I wonder if that is weight. Like some of it's got to be technique and, and the rider and the lines and all that. Um, but some of it's got to be the weight too, which is interesting. Fascinating. But that was what really started. I was like, I'm like, Huh. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, both turn nine and turn four on PIR, the way we run it without the chicane, are turns that you're full power going into essentially a straight. In a straight way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I could see how you would want to have as little resistance as possible to the power being put down to that rear wheel. Yeah. So, it, it's, I got my, my brain cooking on it. I'm pretty motivated. Uh, I'm excited to do it. So, we'll see. Uh, I'll probably have a story or two in the off season about stuff, but. Um, I got to finish up the series now because I'm kind of behind in terms of reality versus publishing. <laughs> um, so you just have to do it before you can talk about it. Um, but yeah, there's some interesting things there. Uh, we got to get you out into the racing scene, sir. Yeah, I think next year it's going to happen. Yeah. I'm going to hold you to that. I'm, I'm holding you to that. I got to lose a little bit of weight. That's the thing. Honestly, I'm not too concerned about my weight at this point. It's just a matter of getting out there and getting. I didn't do a single track day this year, Jensen. Yeah. Not one. So talk about being rusty. I've ridden a lot. I put a lot more miles on my bike than ever, but not at that level. It's a, it's been a adventuring, dirt biking, learning how to handle a 600 pound bike on single track rides and stuff like that. We gotta find you yeah. a, a bike in the off season. Get it. Spend the spend the winter getting it all prepped and right. ready to go. There's plenty of R6s and stuff like that out there. For sure. So I'm not too concerned about finding a bike. You know, hopefully we find a good clean one that's not going to have a blown motor on the first race. Yeah. Um so we'll we'll see. I'm 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 excited to kind of cross that bridge. And doesn't know yet. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Are you serious? I've kind of alluded to it like kind of joking and be like yeah, I might start racing. And she's I'm, like, okay, neat. I'm glad you said something because I probably will have a cat out of the back. I'm like, oh, Ann, what do you think about Shaheen going racing? I think that's going to be great, don't you? Can't wait to see you at the racetrack. I, I will say this. She is the most supportive human being on the planet, so she would probably look at you and go, well, yeah, if he wants to do that, he's going to be really good at it. Um, and that's just something she says about everything I do, even though I'm not good at half the things I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's um, love is what that is. I'm, I'm curious to see how that is because, you know, I've switched careers. I'm going to make sure I can make some money this winter. And then, you know, one of the first things I want to spend money on is a race bike. I thought I was going to buy the V4 Street Fighter. And I'm probably still going to aim at one of those next year. But um, I think I'm more interested in spending money on a race bike and getting the tires and everything that's required to, you know, for next year. Do you think Alex can be my mentor next year? Dun, dun, dun. Is he a middleweight mentor? I've seen him. I, I thought he does mentorship. He's... I don't, he, he was in charge of the new racing school, uh, this year, but he's now the incoming vice president of the club. Wow. So I don't think he will be, I don't think he has the time or the response. I don't, I don't think the responsibilities fall that way, but you might get Matt O'Rourke because oh, he and Chris yeah. Page are going to take any one over. of those guys are amazing. Those, I don't know what those guys are going to race for next season, but Matt almost guarantee is going to be on a Kramer still. Yeah. So, yeah, he could probably end up being your mentor, and he'd be a good one. He's good. He's fast. He's pretty fast. He's pretty, o- he's pretty okay. Yeah. He's got that stupid lap record instead of me. <laughs> but that was the thing. So, so I was doing 22s. I never got the 22s in the lightweight class, though. And then in the same race, he and I broke the the record by, like, 
a second and a half. That's a lot. And he did it the lap before me and was like a two tenths quicker or something like that. So like I didn't even get the record for a lap. He got it before me. <laughs> you sitting there just like, Arr! but we had a good battle. It was fun. I think that's half the fun of it. It's really neat to see everybody out there battling. And then at the same time, at the end of the race, be like under the same tent, helping each other put their bikes back together and get back out there again. Like, that's the cool part. Like there's good camaraderie. Yeah. Um, I would say Omer's got a good vibe for that. CRA had a really cool vibe. Um, I haven't really had to experience the Wormra paddock because I, I was such a shit show the one time I was there. Um, but you know, I'd say end over end, like for me, like I was just text messaging Alex actually earlier before you came over. I was like, Hey, you're going to do the track day. Cause it's, it's more fun when you have people to chase right? and you have your friends there. Like, it's more fun racing your friends. Right. And everyone's kind of got a good mentality. Like, yeah, you take it seriously, but like it is club racing. At the end yeah, it's of the a day. little more lighthearted. And-, and some people totally mess that up and lose sight of it. And that's just those human beings exist in the world. And there's some people that don't take it seriously at all. And those, you know, that's their deal. But I think it's, I think you can walk the line. I think you can have it both ways. Right. Well, next year is next year. Let's see next what year. happens. Um, I got one more thing I, I did that we should talk about. I got one thing we want to talk about too. Okay, you want to do your thing or my thing? Well, me, what do you, you, me, you, you, me. me? This, huh? Coda, flip a coin. Actually, it's funny because it's about Coda. Oh, the circuit of the, the Americas. Coda. Oh yeah, you were there riding some fucking fire breathers. So the guys at Eleven Motorsports invited me out. Um, and how do I describe the organization? It's like a high end track day. Mm. They're like a high end track day organization. And this is, is usually this for the elite. Yeah, it's just, it's for the, the track day enthusiast that has little money and doesn't have a lot of time. Right. It's so like their whole deal is like they, they keep your bike, they work on it for you, they drop it off at the track day, they have a track that they're based out of. So you mm. could just like show up within an hour's notice, but they've got a home track and like you literally can call them up like, Hey, I'm going to come out and do a track day. I'll be there in 45 minutes. And then like you get there and your bike's up on stands on warmers ready to go. Wow. Um, full service and then they go to a bunch of different track days throughout the year barber vir coda i think i don't know if they went out to laguna but you know nice tracks and they'll like bring your bike for you and then you get to the paddock and like everything's set up like your pit set up you got a a table and a chair you just that's their hashtag it's like show up and ride that's crazy so usually you got to have a trailer full of shit to bring along with you yeah and that's like the whole thing like they just want to take that part of it out of the equation because for some of these guys like Prepping the bike, getting it loaded up on the trailer, getting it, you know, driving across fucking Texas is huge. Mm-hmm. Driving across all the way, you know, like that literally is could be days of time, yeah, tens of hours. And these are people that maybe don't have that kind of time or don't want to have to have that kind of time. And so it's like, no, I just fly in, I land at 6 a.m., I'm on the bike at 9, I fly out at 7 p.m., <laughs> and that's my track day because I can, yeah. Um, so that was that was interesting to see, and it's an interesting model. And um, I've got a story out on ANR about it. You should go read because it, it's an interesting idea. On, um, I look at the track day. I wanted I actually wanted to have this conversation with you as a, as a topic for the show, um, because you look at track days. I don't know about how it is for you, but for me, like I've always thought track days were a commodity. Absolutely, There's not a big difference between the different organizations right. in terms of like what they're offering me as a customer. Like I usually go to the tracks that like I figure out what track I want to ride and I go to their calendar and I see what dates there work for me. And it's like, Oh, that one's run by 
Group A. Okay, yeah, that weekend works. So I'm guessing I'm riding with Group A. And then right. the next weekend at the other track I want to do is run by Group B. So I'll ride with Group B. Like, there just isn't a difference for me. So you haven't noticed the difference between the different organizations that put on the same track? There are. Like, I'm not going to say they're not different, but, like, they're not meaningfully different. Hmm. Like, prices are usually the same. The I way they're run is usually I think the same. Because you're at a level where you're pretty self-regulated. You could go out there and hold your own and have a good time and walk out of there the same shape you walked in. But for a beginner, for a, a C-level or three-level, whatever they call in each, each yeah. uh, track, they, that makes a bit of a difference. Because, I would say that is where they differentiate right. is in, like, how do they treat beginners and right. some clubs or organizations are more hands-on than others and they offer different amounts of instruction and like yeah i can get that um but it all still feels very race to the bottom for me where it's like you're really just kind of like who got the better the better date yep and who's the cheapest right because there was i was i will say there was one track day this year where i was going to go do the track day and it was like 350 dollars yeah, what's you pass that 250 dollar price range it was it was fifty percent more than any other track day at that at that track. Right. I'm just thinking like, no, no. Yeah. What are you offering for that kind of yeah, price? What like, are you doing no. for three hundred and fifty bucks? And that was the thing they weren't really offering. I was just like, no, I'm not going to do it. Like, I don't I don't need to do a track day that bad. I mean, I've I've helped put together track days at, at my days at Motocorsa here in Portland, and and track time is not cheap. No, period. it's not. And it's just Coda, a weekend at Coda is oh, like I can't even imagine fifty grand or something level, stupid. Uh, track, forget it. Stupid. But between, I mean, I think at PIR, you know, by the time you get the track and you get the one a pair of EMT that are there and food for everybody, you're in the thousands of dollars. And so PIR is something like lucky seven a, to ten thousand a day. Yeah, I th- uh, yeah, silly, silly money. It's silly money. So I can't imagine like Coda. Forget it. Coda, they list their price at fifty, but there's a lot of add-ons that like kind of gets you at the end of the day yeah. so i mean as a as a you know as an organization that puts those events together you're, you're lucky if you break even it's like you have to have a business model beyond just the track day itself right. and i think that's where track organizations I, i've been to a track day where we weren't allowed to turn a wheel until like 11 o'clock 12 o'clock wow because the track day owner hadn't paid the bill yet to the to the track right and had to get the people that were signing up that day paying cash to to then, and you're just sitting there going like, literally counting the cash yeah and you're sitting there just like well you know it's a tough business and and i think at the end of the day like you're only going to have like one or two players in yeah. in the areas because it's just because it is a commodity uh for the most part you hope and, you're a dealership or a mechanic shop that brings in business right well that's the thing and that was the interesting part to go see what 11 is doing because they're kind of flipping it on the model. Like, hey, we're not a commodity anymore. We're like, actually, our differentiating thing is our service. Now, like, we're at a track day at Coda. There's only one day, one track day provider at Coda before this, and it's it's Ride Smart. Mm-hmm. So you're in this kind of like bubble of a thing, like, well, you know, we are we are offering something different in the sense that we're not this other organization, but what they're really offering is like, we're like, no one is offering a, you know, you come in, they set up shop. Like, like I, I literally just showed up. There's a bike sitting there. My leathers are on a rack. Like dudes get me water. Like it's a whole, it's a whole different business model. They're, they're differentiating on service rather than differentiating on like, Hey, I saved you 10 bucks because we're 10 bucks cheaper than our competition. Right. right. I think that's really smart. And 
and it was interesting to see like the way that they run their business for that day was they had like a couple other organizations kind of glomming on too. So uh, I think it was Ducati Austin was down there doing a track day. And like, I think it makes a ton of sense if you're a dealership and you're trying to offer track days to your like high end customers. Cause like, like all the garages were $40,000 plus bikes. You know, I never, I've never seen more Panigale V4s in my entire life. <laughs> I'm on there. I'm sitting there in a garage with four HP4 races. That's where they are. Literally, literally. <laughs> so 11 Motorsports bought all the, uh, them and another entity between them bought all the bikes that were available in the US. So is the one in Vancouver gone now? Gone. <gasps> I may have been riding that bike for all I know. That's amazing. <laughs> they they cut some deal with Germany. Um, we kept saying something like that needs to happen. Either a buyback program or someone has yeah. to. And it's just, and it's silly because like I think they've already sold like three or four of them. You know, like they're, they've they've done what they the dealers them. were Probably not able not to for do. Pennies on the dollar, but for a huge discount. I have a pretty good idea uh, what they paid, and it is insane balls. Forty. I'll tell you. I'll tell you after the show. Oh man, I'm dying to hear this. I'll tell you. After and the listeners show. are gonna write. Hate I'll say for this. if you want to get one. Uh huh. I I know a guy. I'll hook you up. <laughs> the price tag is sub fifty. <gasps> for an eighty thousand dollar bike. Yes, and they oh, are still damn. making a profit on that. They're making a healthy profit. You can't see me on camera because I'm not on camera. My jaw just hit the floor. And I will tell you just real quick, the HP4 race is the real fucking It's deal. all that. It is worth every I've fucking I've been dying dollar. to hear your, your so, love story with this thing. Five minute review on, on the HP4 race. Okay, go. It is literally it's last generation bike. It's last generation bike. It's been out for a while. I mean, it, the worst part about me riding the bike is it just cements in my head what a fuck up bmw was with a new one especially in the u.s market in terms of trying to sell it because there is not a product problem there at all that bike is rad Uh, um the price was stupid just stupidly priced i mean we've always said ducati just came along and fucked them by making the super legera for the same price that's street legal cheaper street legal you're right (laughs) had more power weighed less the thing that's tough about the hp4 race and this is i think where it got bmw motorrad kind of in a hole it is a bike for like racers. It's a bike for it's it's not a consumer bike. No. It's not a consumer bike just in everything about it. So like you hop on a Panigale V4R, which is a rad machine too, but it's got nice big color TFT dash probably and way more user friendly. You want to change the <laughs> suspension. It's got a really easy interface to do that and it explains it really. Well. That's one of the things actually I love about the Panigale V4 is how they were able to take really complex electronics and make them just so easy to understand. Like you don't have to have a PhD in chassis mechanics. You don't need to know like your traction controls. Like, do you want more traction or less traction? You want more wheelie, less wheelie. You want more rebound. You want you want like better front end feel or better rear end squat. Like you just you just tell it what you want and it figures out what you, what to give you. The HP4 race is the exact opposite. Like that bike should come with a laptop. It <laughs> should, should come, come with, with a, a team. with a pre-installed thing cuz like like even the screen that like it boots up to, it has all this information and like the guy at 11 Motorsports is like Jones like I have no idea what this yeah, is. I had look. to look at it for a second. I'm like I'm like, "Oh, that's the lean angle, that's the water temperature, that's the voltage from the regulator." There's like something written in German. It, what does it, that mean? It's like only information that an engineer would want to know. Right. And it's it's a bike that's like it's as close to a race bike that you can get straight from the factory without being a race team. And it's not so well, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not a good bike like if you don't know what you're doing with it 
one, you're not going to be able to enjoy it to its potential. And right. two, like you're just not going to be able to work with it. And like, even like with us, no one's trained on this bike. Like we don't have the software that we don't have to change all the settings. And I think that's one of the things that they're, well, the guys at 11 motorsports are actually going to be able to hang their hat on. Cause like the engineers from Germany are come out and teach them. Basically, they'll wow. be the only people basically trained on the bike in the U S and you actually need to kind of have that to really extract the potential. Cause like we're sitting there like messing with the settings and, one of the things I didn't like about the bike that I had a tough time with is like you're doing the settings and I think I have the electronics set the way I want. And I think I'm like, okay, yeah, I got the wheelie control. I'm like, yeah, I got the wheelie control at a pretty high intervention level. And then I go down the front straightaway and I'm on the gas and the wheelie comes up. I'm like, cool. That's rad. And then the wheelie's like, just all of a sudden decides to like, keep going. Like, Uh Oh, I'm at like what I, now this is like butt dyno versus reality. <laughs> I think I'm at 45 degrees. The bike's probably at like 10, right? Yeah, like that's two how that inches works. off the ground. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm like it's five feet in the air. You're like you got five inches that time. <laughs> so like understand that before I go any further. But I'm sitting there going like, oh, I think I got the wheel like about two feet off the ground, <laughs> and then all of a sudden the bike just like goes to what feels like 12 o'clock. Oh, that's and I'm thinking nice. like I've got a pretty high level wheelie control, so I'm not giving a fuck. And like it scared the shit out of me. We were like, like, you know, the bike comes back down. I'm like, all right, that was weird. And the guy behind me is like, hey, did you make to do a wheelie that big? And I'm like, were you, yeah, was that a photo op? Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. <laughs> but like you sit there and I'm like, clearly the electronics are a little bit more sophisticated about that. And you start like talking to them, like, well, there's like, it works within envelopes. Like, so when I gave it some more gas, when it was kind of dropping the wheelie, right. it's like, oh, you don't want the wheelie control anymore. Like, you wanted to go up. Like, we're going to let you do that now because. We assume you're not an idiot. It thought Mark Marquez was riding. Whereas like a Panic LA V4, you get the wheel up, you hold the gas, and it'll just hold it as long as it can, and it'll set it down nice and slow for you because you're a consumer, <laughs> you don't know any better. I'm a computer. I've been programmed by professionals. I'm going to take over for you. And the HP4 race doesn't have that. So it's just it's just funny from like a philosophical point of view, from like a setup point of view. Like it's set up more like a race bike will be. Like that's why like Mark Marquez can still do a wheelie down the front straight during, you know, the last, you know, as he's winning the race, because it's like, Oh, you know what you're doing? You're at like a, you know, 45 degree angle and you give it more gas. You clearly want a 12 o'clock wheelie. Here it is. (laughs) It's a, it it almost feels like the Panigale V4 is made by Italians engineered by Germans. Whereas the, HP four race was made by Germans. <laughs> no, I think I <laughs> and think, engineered by Italians. Like, oh yeah, have some fun. <laughs> I think it's the difference of having a bike that was developed by the production side right. of the business versus a bike that was developed by the racing side of the business. That's definitely it's, a bike that needs to come with support. It doesn't have any of the creature comforts. It doesn't have any like easy to use interfaces or you know, it's not laid out like in a smart way. It's just laid out in a way that's like like a race team would use it. Hmm. And I think that's just a fundamental difference. And that's, it was a very interesting thing to see and to work with because the, the machine is very potent, but you have to be a high level rider to appreciate it. It's a, it's a rider's machine. It's a racer's machine. Like I would say it's like a connoisseur bike. Like you have to know something about motorcycles to appreciate the carbon fiber frame and the, the world Superbike front end that it basically has right. and, and all the technology on the engine and to be like, not scare like that, that engine's got like a 5,000 kilometer life. You have to replace Which is it. nothing. I mean, if you're only doing track days, that, that's it's like, okay, but yeah, 
Well, you can only do track days. Yeah. Um, so did you get to have like one hot lap with it or a couple of hot oh, laps? Oh, no, I spent the whole day on it. I spent two whole days oh, on dude, it. Oh, dude, what? So I spent almost my entire time on that bike. I spent one afternoon. I, was, I spent half a day on it on Saturday, and I spent the entire day on it Sunday. Save for one session where I went out on uh, Johan Zarco's Moto 2 bike from like 2012 or 2013. Oh, wow. How was that? It was a giant piece of shit. Yeah, I mean, that's. <laughs> I have yet to speak to a motor journalist who's ridden a MotoGP or Moto2 bike and not have him say anything other than what you just said. It was the most disappointing. <laughs> was it the most disappointing? I think it was the most disappointing experience I've ever had on a motorcycle because you sit there and you're like, this is a Moto2 bike and it sucks. Like, Sometimes you shouldn't meet your they, heroes, Jensen, or ride them for them. <laughs> they, they, they did such a good job. You're looking at that bike. Everything that Suter did is so perfect. And you're like, oh... That's so clever the way you built that that swing arm or that that little piece there, that fairing and the way this works and all that. And there's there's all these beautiful pieces. And then everything Honda about that bike fucking sucks. <laughs> the throttle is wrong. The engine has no power. The sh- the gearbox was a mess. So I get I go out in my first session or my first lap. I did one session. The first lap and I'm just kind of getting used to it. I'm going like 80%. And it's just really hard. Like the, the throttle is kind of like a light switch. The first eighth of a turn doesn't do anything. Like it's just slop. Oh, man. Um, and then I'm trying to bang through the gears. And like I'm having a real hard time shifting. The shifter isn't working right. Um, I go and I start my second lap. And um, I'm still having more issues with the shifter. I go down the back straight of Dakota and I can't get the fucker to shift out of fourth gear up to fifth. <laughs> so I'm stuck in fourth gear going down the back straight of Coda. And I'm just like, well, this fucking, this is stupid. And then I make the hairpin left. I go through the little like stadium section. I'm coming around like to the Nikki turn. Mm-hmm. Turn. What is that turn? It's towards the 15 towards the, or so. The end it, of the track, it's a triple uh, right hander. And the thing just pops out of like gear. I'm in like third gear and it just pops into some weird neutral. (laughs) And I'm just like, okay, I'm done. Like I've had nothing but problems. Like the last two laps, I'm just bringing it in. Like we're just done. Why was the bike there? The guy owns it. Oh, the 11 motorsports guy owns it. He bought it. Oh, okay. Um, he's got like, he's got like all these bikes. We had Josh Heron out there. Um, he just bought Josh like a, he bought a Jixer just so Josh could ride with us. Um, dude's, dude's got a good bankroll. Apparently uh, behind him. So, um, yeah, it was really disappointing because I think, truthfully, I think they kind of got sold a lemon. I think they were told like the bikes just been serviced. It's ready to go. Like we just did the, re- we just refreshed the motor. Everything's great. And I think it's like, no, 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 this thing was ridden hard and, and put it. away wet <laughs> and no one's done shit. And it's just, it just wasn't maintained. And it's also seven years old. Yeah. And you're just like, it's just clapped out. I was just like, guys, like, you know what you should do? Just go buy like a production CBR motor. <laughs> And like just replace, just, just replace music on that thing. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that would be more fun. Um, I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's like a fifteen-year-old, thirteen-year-old engine in a modern chassis. It just yeah, but exactly then you got to was. ride a, the opposite side of the spectrum from the HP4. You look like I saw a picture of you. <laughs> you look like me on a Husky 400, 401. Oh yeah, I rode the Ovale. <laughs> um, I'm not an Ovale believer yet. No. I think I did not immediately take to that machine. Well, also, you're, I think, a little bit bigger than that's general yeah, market. Yeah, I don't think it was a size issue. It's just, 
I just couldn't get comfortable on it. Like it kind of comes back to that head part where like I was really stiff in the shoulders and like my second session on it was way better than my first. And I think if I'd spent like a whole day on it, especially if I was at a go-kart track rather than like just a cone track in a parking lot, uh, I would have learned something a little bit more about it. But like I had a hard time like getting comfortable, going fast. It is a little hard like Panda Bear on a tricycle (laughs) um, with the shifting and brakes and stuff. But that was less of the issue and more it was just like body position and being comfortable on the bike and like it's just weird it's just a weird experience it's intriguing like i wouldn't sit there and be like this is shit i don't think i don't think that's the case but i didn't take to it as easily as i thought i would and uh that was a little surprising and i think rennie actually had the same issue when he got on them we were, we were talking about that a little bit and you're just like, it's not as straightforward, at least for someone like me as I thought it would be. Yeah. Those I, are interesting machines though. It, it, it looks pretty funny with you on it. It looks like it's a two thirds of a regular motorcycle and you're 100% big. It's uh, <laughs> it's silly with the, and now they have like a 212 CC version, which is just silliness. Yeah. And uh, they're getting pretty serious about like what's coming down the pipe. I heard a little bit about what's coming down the pipe and, it's intriguing. Um, the price point's a little high, I think. Like, that's the thing where I'm sitting there going, like, do I really need Olin's forks and Olin's shock right now? Do I really need to spend that? Like, I, I think, think it's a selling can, point. You can easily take a thousand or two thousand dollars off the price tag and get like some other suspension provider, and no one would know the difference. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, our buddy Andy Debrino just got the Sunday Motors flat track. Hmm. which is literally like the Avali of flat track bikes. It's the same idea. It's like a two third size bike. It's the same motor. It's that same Daytona motor, that cool. 190 motor. Right. And then they've got a 147 CC version as well. And uh, I want to go rip on those because that looks like that could be a lot of fun for flat tracking. Yeah, and those, those are, are flat like track $2,000. They make total sense. Yeah, that makes way more sense. Yeah. yeah I think the 147, I think is 2,400 bucks. Dude. And I think the 190 is 32. That's still not bad. That's not bad. When you consider how much it's going to cost to like find like a uh, a 150, a, CRF, a CRF or a, y, um, a TTR or something like that and to right. put like, you know, 19s on it or whatever. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, it was a lot of fun to, to ride some really cool bikes in Coda. It definitely got me thinking a lot more about track days and, and like I don't. I think for like 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 a dealership like Motocourse is a great example here in, in town since we both are have been affiliated with their track days and stuff. <laughs> right. Um like it makes total sense for me. We're like, oh yeah, that would that would be that should be like a dealer level type of thing that you provide and like you customer can keep a, sh- a bike at the shop and a certified Ducati tech can work on it and prep it and get it ready for your track day. And the you know, the, the track day team brings it out to the track and sets it up in their tent for you and you just show up in your car and like you're ready to go. Ready then you, go. Ride you don't have to bring anything like with you. that's the Ducati experience, right? right? Like if, right. if you're a premium brand, if you're a Ducati, if you're a BMW, if you're an Aprilia, that should be the type of value added service that a dealer can bring for you. It's interesting you bring that up because I mean, we're, you know, we're looking at a dealership lineup shutting down in the Washington area oh recently. God. Five dealers close. Yeah. That's, and that's huge. I mean, they've been around for a while and that's, that's a, uh, uh, to be seen what's going to happen there there's a lot do of you, speculations but do you have any information on that i don't necessarily have any information on there it's just all you know through the grapevine bullshit so i'd rather not even speculate on on hearsay because hmm. that's all i have um 
what I hope doesn't happen is that the, you know, Washington, Seattle area loses, you know, their Ducati um, representation. So Mm -hmm. likely either they're going to reopen or someone's going to buy into it and they're going to open something up. But I, I, you know, I've been, for the, for like 15 years, I was in the motorcycle industry. And the one thing that I always noticed was that the, the dealerships always had, there was always something missing. Like what's the difference between, I'm trying to think of how to put this thing. When you go to a high-end uh, uh, mall and you go to a, a um, store, every display, every store sort of tells a story with what they're selling, right? You look at a mannequin and it's got like the gear, the shoes, the bag, this, that, and there's a story. Like you're saying, all right, we're getting ready for summer, winter, fall, whatever. When you go to a motorcycle dealership, they have a room with a fuck ton of motorcycles just thrown in there. And then they have another room with a bunch of gear thrown in there. And they have another room that's got you know, their accessories and parts thrown in there, and then you have service. So typically most motorcycle dealerships are, is like this inner company battle between sales, parts and accessories, apparel, and service. Very rarely have I seen any dealership, actually I've never seen any dealership successfully put all that together to tell a story. If you're going to buy a motorcycle, especially let's talk about high-end bikes. Let's talk about Ducatis. How much cooler would it be if you walked <laughs> in and you had a full-on, right? Uh, you had a full-on uh, experience, right? You walk in and instead of having 40 motorcycles parked in that dealership, they're instead telling you a story. You walk in and you're like, cool, I'm going to look at a buying a monster. Well, if I want to buy a monster, I want to look at specific kind of gear, specific kind of helmet, specific kind of, you know, maybe a bag or whatever luggage I want to look at. And so, I feel like a dealership would be so much better serving to its um, to its clientele by instead of just filling that location up with just a ton of bikes and just making it like where it's difficult to walk through the place, where they're more of like a, you know, I don't know, I'm not much of a shopper, but I imagine like Nordstrom's when you walk in and you've got a beautiful uh, display setup. So I kept wondering, you know, we're, we're at a point now where dealerships are starting to get hurt. We're, we're hearing more often than not in the American market that they're not making as much money. The margins are lower. People are buying their accessories and their parts and their apparel online because someone uh, might be able to sell it for a little bit cheaper. So, you know, why not concentrate on – this is a chance. This is a huge chance for a lot of dealerships to kind of reassess where they're sitting and saying, okay, we've been doing the same old shit for decades and we're going nowhere. So why can't we start looking at it as a high-end item that we're selling? Because they are. The cheapest motorcycle is several thousand dollars. That's a lot of money, right? You don't have to buy $40,000 V4R to spend a lot of money in a motorcycle industry. The average Joe can spend $7,000 to buy an average motorcycle, and that's a fuck ton of money still. And when you buy that, it doesn't end there. As a dealership, if you want to make money, you have to look at, I'm, I'm selling a bike, which is just a clean slate for me being able to sell parts, accessories and service. But if I have them all in separate segregated rooms from each other and I have to force the customer to go through the same bullshit experience that they've been going for the last 20, 30 years, it's it's outdated and it's old. And so I'm kind of looking at dealerships here in town. I mean, Motocorsa is one of them that you know I've, I've been looking at and it's like, man, they have such a cool looking shop. You walk in there and it just has a really neat feel to it, but it's still the same old shit. It's still a room full of motorcycles with a couple of accessories put here and there to just kind of maybe get your attention, but there is no real story being told. I think some of that is the, the push by Ducati to have like a, a homogenized look to its dealerships. 
Shame on Ducati for not you know? for not pushing for a full story to be told. Yeah. The thing that's interesting, I just saw this quote uh, literally, I think, today or yesterday. It's by Edgar uh, Heinrich, who's the uh, head of design at BMW Motorrad. Mm-hmm. He said, a motorcycle is the big- biggest accessory that you can wear. It's not about being the fastest. Right. And it's that idea of like, this is a, a this is beyond just like, hey, I'm going to sell you a pair of shoes. Like there's some people that's like I just need a pair of shoes because yeah. I because I gotta walk somewhere. Fine, there's utilitarian people everywhere. But it's like it says like well, why do people buy Nike shoes? Why do people buy Prada shoes? Why do people buy Louboutins? Why do people buy Adidas? I I buy I have had a pair of Adidas Sambas since I was like 13. Why? You and me both, I, yeah. Because I fucking love that shoe. Yeah. It fits really well. I like the way it looks. It's comfortable. It's just a classic style Adidas shoe. Yep. You know there's there's gotta be something more to selling something than just like hey i'm selling you a piece of transportation or i'm selling you just this like this little toy like we should be selling people a lifestyle we should be selling people like literally like this is it's why people buy ferraris it's not because of the best car in the world it's because it's a ferrari and like you show up in a a ferrari and people go oh that's a ferrari that's cool and little kids look at it and they point and have them on their walls you know and they stare at them at night and Um, it's, it's gotta be more to that. And I think we've, we've missed that point in, in the industry to quite an extent. It's been interesting to watch that. I've been working a little bit with, um, and I have in the last couple of months, but, uh, our friend Kevin, uh, Velamaki, he, you know, he, he comes from sort of that apparel and, and accessories backpack world. And he and I, he, you know, he's the one that sort of brought it on and he was like, can you believe it? Can you believe when you walk into a dealership? a motorcycle dealership, they've lost sight of the idea that they're selling a statement. They're selling this emotional attachment for someone that is saying, yeah, cool, I'm going to spend a couple hours in this shop that I'm going to forget about later on in life. And so all they're doing is they're just making sure that you're in and out quickly and they're selling you the CBR, they're selling you the Jixer, they're selling you the Harley, whatever the hell brand, and getting it over with as quickly as possible so that they can just sell another motorcycle to another person. What happens then is, that emotional purchase that you've made becomes forgettable and all you concentrate on is the item that's in your in your garage now. So now as a customer, you don't think about going back to that dealership. You don't think about what other services could they possibly do for you because that dealership didn't spend any real time helping you narrate that story. So now you're the kind of customer who looks for the cheapest brand of oil, who looks for videos on YouTube on how to do your own oil changes or whatever the hell you're going to farkle your bike bike with. And as a dealership, you've lost a chance to make any money at all. And that's what they're there for, right? A dealership's there to ultimately be able to um, employ a certain number of people and give a service to a clientele. I think I think dealerships need to stop thinking of themselves as retail and start thinking of themselves as service industry. 100%. An experience. It's supposed to be an experience. And part of that experience is a service that you that you give to people. You, you and I, we go out to dinner. We go down the street to um, a China or something like that. Right. We're not going there to buy food. We're no. going there to have dinner. Right. We're, we're not going there to, to wash have, dishes later. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have like a sommelier who can recommend a wine to go with the pasta. You're going there because someone who basically makes food like an artist is going to prepare the meal for you. If yep. I just wanted food, I go to the Burger Shack or I go to Safeway and cook it myself or whatever yep. it is. You go out to dinner because you want to be serviced. You want to have a waiter. That's that's why we tip. You know, like oh, I had really good wait service. They kept my drink full. My food came out. It was warm. It was hot. Yeah, they made my you food feel was, good about being. It was good. The atmosphere was great. It was a nice place to sit down and enjoy a meal. The decor was nice. Everyone was friendly. 
that's why you go out to dinner. Yep. It's not because you're like, I'm buying food. I'm not buying a motorcycle. I'm buying a motorcycle experience. And that's not saying that dealerships aren't hiring the right people. There's plenty of places that have the right, you know, employees who have a really cool attitude and they're really excited and they're super passionate about the thing. But but as a dealership, the the basic layout of your shop should allow a customer to walk through and have that experience with you know, the help of the salesperson that's with them, but ultimately their eyes should be drawn in the right direction. Ikea sort of has the right idea. You can't just walk through an Ikea. No. You're like forced to go through this maze, but it makes you think about, oh man, my living room could use that. Oh man, my... And well, Ikea is an interesting one because you kind of get it both ways. Like there is like a section like, hey, here's every fucking couch we saw. <laughs> right. But they're really smart where you have to walk through like, hey, here's a whole room set up with the couch, the beer, like... Right. like you don't just like look for the couch that you think you like. You get to see like, hey, this is this is a whole look that includes this couch. Yep. And when you're more likely to buy a couch and the dresser and the lamp because you're like, hey, this room looks really good. I want I want like four of these things than just the one. So a dealership usually starts that process and ends it very quickly. What happens is, you know, let's say a, a parts and apparel uh, accessories manager might be given a specific budget, and they say, you know, the the principal or the owner or GM will say, okay, you have this much money to be able to dress up. X amount of motorcycles, because what will ultimately happen is you'll have a demo, and you don't want your demo to be boring the same old bike. You want it to have an exhaust on there, you know, some cool clip-ons on there, just just a neat little ensemble of things that will make me as the buyer go, oh, yeah, when I buy one, I'm going to look forward to getting this, this, and this for it, because it looks really cool, it sounds really good, it feels really good. So that's all they do. They stop there. Then it's up to the apparel people to go, hey, I know you just spent ten thousand dollars in this motorcycle may i please show you a couple of thousand dollars worth of safety gear that's going to outlast this bike and you're going to hold on to it for years i know you weren't thinking about this spending this extra money because it wasn't there in front of you presented earlier you went through the process of buying the bike and then you went through the process of buying the accessories and then you're going to go through the process of buying the apparel and then you're going to go through the process of meeting the service people and as a consumer you're looking at all this going fuck am i making the right decision because this is adding up real quickly because it was given to you incrementally as opposed to like when you walk in and there is a cool display of a Honda Goldwing with two mannequins geared up with the right helmet and the intercom system and like, you know, they're whatever the hell they're going to pack into the bike together, like as a whole story. And for a dealership, you know, there is a couple of good ways that this will pay out in the end. A, it looks cool. B, it helps you sell the full story. C, now instead of selling a motorcycle, you're selling accessories. There's a lot more margin in that stuff. It's It might be nickel and diming it initially, but at the end of the year, when you're looking at your profit and loss and statement, you're going to say and go, oh, wow, man, we sold a lot more accessories. We sold a lot more parts because it was out there and we helped customers look at it constantly. And it can't be stagnant. You got to change that stuff, you know, at the very least seasonally. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I know that we have a lot of listeners that are in the dealership side and I, I want to see that. I want to see that change happen sooner than not because we're losing we're losing dealers and that sucks i don't care what city you live in when you lose your ducati dealer your yamaha dealer your favorite honda dealer that's a clubhouse that's gone that's a cool hangout that's gone that's a a, you know hopefully a support system that was there for you that's gone so you know from someone who's been in that industry for you know over a decade i don't want to see it go away i don't want to see it you know, become stagnant. And if the dealerships continue on doing the same shit they've done for the last 20 years, it's gonna. Because people are buying differently. People are experiencing things differently. You want to hear like a really unpopular idea? Yeah. I'm totally cool with it. Are you? I'm totally cool with dealerships closing up. Certain dealerships. Because I think 
I think we got rid of a lot of dead weight or or bad dealerships, bad motorcycle companies. Like right. I, I, you know, I think the recession got got rid of a lot of dead weight for the industry, but I don't think it got rid of everything. And I think we've still kind of struggled. We still kind of had rough times. And I think this industry is still stuck in forty years ago. Yeah. And I think the dealerships and the OEMs and the apparel companies and whoever it is that still have that 40 year, year, you know, year old mindset that are out of date. Those are the ones that are struggling the most and getting rid of them, I think is great for the industry. I don't like, I don't, I don't know the I issue. I don't think it's a bad idea on your part. I don't know what the, 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 the deal is with the, the five dealerships in the Seattle area. And my experience with, with them was that they actually seemed a little bit more progressive. So I'm not going to like lump them into it. But like the idea, like, hey, there's a bunch of dealerships that just closed down in a major market. Like, yeah, it's bad, but I see opportunity. That's an opportunity for someone to come in in a great market with a great, you know, clean slate, and then can think about like, hey, this is a tech area. Yes. What do tech people do to buy to buy things? How can right. we be, you know, more hip? How am I going to get like the 30 year old Microsoft guy on a Ducati? Let's think about outside the box. And I think they were doing that to some extent already, but like, there's still like. There's like that potential there where it's like you're not sitting there like, well, we've been this dealership for 70 years and this is the same way we do it. Like, yep. I can think of a dealer for a motorcycle in my garage nearby that is like literally like 60 years in the past. We're like, we went in, I took the bike to get service and they're just like, if there wasn't like even a service rider, it's like, oh, I'll just let you know when it's ready. Uh, how's like 200 bucks sound? I'm like, I don't know. How does it sound? I don't know. How you're supposed to sell me these. Like, things. are you going to work on it for 20 hours? Because that sounds great. If you're going to work on it for 10 minutes, I don't know. I think I'm kind of getting screwed. I don't know. Why don't you write up some contract? But it was literally like a, a smile and a handshake kind right. of thing. And like, that's kind of cool in a way, but like, it's also not how you do business. And like, I agree with it, you. It's, it's, it's interesting. Like, I, I, I'm curious that that brand doesn't have a more modern dealer around me. What brand is it? Uh, you don't want to burn uh, any bridges I'm I'm with you. Yeah. So, okay, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I know you think it's an unpopular idea, and probably the people that work in the dealership side or principals and GMs in general are going to wag their finger at you for saying that, but it is true. If you're stagnant and you're sticking around and you've somehow survived this long, holy shit. Yeah, no, evolve or die. Yeah, and that's really what it comes down to because buyers are different. They're, they're a whole different generation. They're a whole different set of way of spending money. They have different priorities, and if you're still doing shit that's 40 Fuck it. If you're doing shit that's 10 years old, it's old. I mean, if you if you sit there and disagree that you, you're a retail business and not a service business, then look at it from just this perspective. Like, you're doing retail in a model that hasn't existed for, like, 20 years. Yeah. When the internet came out, like, e-commerce has changed things. Amazon has changed the way. I just had groceries delivered to my house. I just did, too. For $10. Yep. And you're just like... Like, again, it was like one of those things where like, wow, you know, I actually lose like an hour when I go to the grocery store and I don't always get everything I want. And I could just click some boxes. It took me like 10 minutes. Like from a time value of time perspective, that actually worked out ahead. Let, let's put the obvious out in the open so people can hear it. Why did you do that? Because my you, time is worth more than $10. Right, but also, do you want to go and deal with stupid people? No, I don't want to stand. I literally, I lose my shit over two things in Portland on a regular basis on a daily basis i lose my shit when i'm driving yep. because we have stupid fucking drivers here <laughs> oh my god and i lose my shit in safeway at the self-checkout lane which is a grocery store because here, <laughs> people can't 
it's like they've never seen these machines for the uh, in their entire life, even though they've been here for like the five years I've lived here. Yeah, human beings' ability there, to forget shit is very. You're interesting just like, how do you not know how to operate this machine? How are you this bad at at scanning things with a barcode laser and putting it in a bag? Like, how do you not figure out like, hey, I'm in a line when the when the next thing is open, I should go walk to it. Like <laughs> it's, it boggles my mind. Like I'm getting worked up just thinking about it. Shane. So here's and the thing, $10, right? I, I, I don't even have to deal with them. I, I'm a very extroverted outgoing social butterfly and majority. And I'm not kidding. I would say 90 something percent of my friends and family are introverted and they all say the same thing you do. They don't want to deal with human beings. They don't want to deal with the next person. They don't want to f- have some idiot spewing bullshit deal with in their beings. face. I just don't want to deal with morons, which is apparently majority of people. I don't know. Not our listeners. They're amazing. But <laughs> <laughs> So what I'm getting at is this. If you're a dealership, you have to remember that majority of your buyers have that same mindset. They don't want to leave their house. They certainly don't want to leave their house to come and get hassled by somebody or be told bullshit by somebody or, or deal with someone that looks just dumb. So the thing you can do is concentrate on the idea that you are indeed a service provider. And the best way to be a service provider is be really good at what you're doing, lay it out properly, and help the customer navigate it in a very, very pleasant and fun way. And the beautiful part is when you pivot from retail to service, now you're starting to differentiate yourself from the commodity of the industry. Yes. We're saying like, hey, I could just sell you a bike. Anyone can sell me a fucking motorcycle. The only reason I'm buying it from you instead of someone else is because somehow you got the territorial monopoly for this metropolitan area. And then if I don't <laughs> want to buy it from you, I got to drive like 30 minutes somewhere else. And that seems like a really stupid idea too. Right. So you get away from that and it's like, no, I'm buying it from you because of the service you're providing me, the, the value extra, the, the thing that isn't just like, Hey, I gave you dollars and you gave me a good, it's the like, no, like I bought it from them because yeah, those guys are great. The, <laughs> the service level the, the bike was dropped off to me and it was, you know, Bob was in the back and he shined it and made sure, I, you know, everything was detailed perfectly and he waxed it and the whole thing, it's the whole thing. That's, that's, again, it comes right back to what, like that track day at Coda where it's like, you know, I don't have that kind of money. Asphalt and rubber isn't providing me with that kind of <laughs> lifestyle yet, but it's that idea of like, I would totally do that type of track day over someone else's like if that was like my dealer level track day i would do that over over the commodity track day the difference is a dealership's already there they're already paying for all this fucking overhead all you got to do is change the way you're presenting it you're already there you're already paying money for this thing you already have all this bullshit on your shoulders as a principal just step back for a minute and look at it and go is it still working yeah and if it's not how can you change it it's interesting i had like three more things that we're going to talk about we're out of time i think it was a good one though I've missed you, buddy. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah, we gotta we gotta get back on routine. Yeah, I've I've been I've been making promises and writing people. We're gonna get back in the rhythm. Summer's insane. It, it was a little it was a little busy. We had a lot of things going on. Things are gonna calm down a bit. I'm here for the next few weeks. We'll get some shows recorded. Get this one out. We'll come back next week and we'll record another one. Boom. And we got plenty more to talk about. Boom, shakalaka. It's that like time it. of season. I'm ready for some fall riding. Goes to some fall camping, which means wet around here. We've got one more track day here in Portland. And hopefully, I, I was looking at the weather. It's like 40% chance of rain. So we'll see. But rain I'm going to go either way. I'm going to put my rain tires on. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I need to get some rain time. Nice. But uh, yeah, we got some stuff to go do, sir. And uh, we'll get back on this podcast thing and we'll have a hoot. Excellent. Oh, yeah, you betcha. Oh, also, we've said this ad nauseum at this point but i think the next uh i've looked at the weather forecast mm. 
and next week looks really good. Oh yeah. And the reason I say this is because now I work from home mm-hmm. and uh, my schedule's open mm-hmm. and there's a gold wing in the garage for, I imagine a very, very short more period of time. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to, I talked to Han about that. They're trying to sell that damn thing. They're trying to like they're trying to sell it to someone. They're like, oh, we gotta let's we make gotta it famous. Rid- let's put get, it on the podcast. We get rid of this. Like, I, truthfully, I think they should get a premium. It's 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 a Brap Talk exclusive model. <laughs> we'll slap a sticker we'll put in the some very stickers. bottom of the bike. Oh, you can only do really it to see it. Shane, we should we should hide a sticker on that bike somewhere. I know. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna do that. That's cool. Okay. <laughs> I'll let you wheelie it with me on the passenger seat so we can get a picture of the sticker at the bottom. Oh, my God. Yeah. Honda, don't listen to that part. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's fine. Everything's okay. Yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's totally fine. All right, sir. Let's get out of here. Let's get the... Fu- Coda, I love you. Yeah, Coda's like... You're it's, a good cat. It's like dinner time. <laughs> All right. Good talk. I'll see you good out there. Good talk. Safety third. Bye. Bye. He's a CIA hitman. Oh, nice. Like 100%. Learning something about people all the time. No, like, I mean, I, that's that's just, that's a Jensen thing. I like it. Like, I haven't heard that for reals, but like, he was... I'm going to ask him. Can you ask a hitman if they're a hitman? I, 100% he works for the CIA. 100%. There isn't oh. a doubt on my mind. Oh, boy. And he's always like traveling for his job. What electrician travels for his job? The ones that have to set up your electricity oh, in no, Bahrain. No, he's And he's also totally take out some CIA wet man. Keep, <laughs> yeah, easy.